Good evening. Steve Bannon is indicted for contempt of Congress. More may f- follow. A humanitarian and political crisis at the border between Belarus and Poland. Nuclear winter and a candidate finally concedes. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, November 12th, 2021. Steve Bannon, a longtime ally of former President Donald Trump, was indicted today on two counts of criminal contempt of Congress after he defied a subpoena from the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. The Justice Department says Bannon, 67, was indicted on one count of refusing to appear for a deposition last month and the other for refusing to provide documents in response to the committee's subpoena. He's expected to surrender to authorities on Monday and will appear in court that afternoon. The indictment came as a second witness, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, defied his own subpoena from the committee on Friday, today, and as Trump has escalated his legal battles with whole documents and testimony about the insurrection. The chairman of the January 6th panel, Mississippi Representative Benny Thompson, said he'll recommend contempt charges against Meadows next week. Attorney General Merrick Garland said Bannon's indictment reflects the Justice Department's steadfast commitment to ensuring that the department adheres to the rule of law. Each count carries a maximum, a minimum, of 30 days in jail and as long as a year behind bars. Both men are said to have been working with organizers of an event at the Capitol on January 6th, where apparently President Trump urged his followers to march on the seat of government. And the jury that will decide Kyle Rittenhouse's fate will be allowed to consider some lesser charges in addition to those prosecutors originally brought against him. That came after fierce debate today by both sides. At one point, as the two sides debated about what a particular photo showed, Judge Bruce Schroeder lost his temper, snapping, you're asking me to give an instruction? I want to see the best picture. Schroeder's behavior in court has become fodder for the Internet. Videos of him making off-topic statements and losing his temper at prosecutors abound. In one clip, Judge Schroeder complains that he can't save a text message. Messages from some of my friends, my few remaining friends. Uh, I have, uh, they come as texts, and then they start belittling me or whatever in one way or another and and, and it can can be quite lengthy and the exchange that's going on between them and us and and but they're entertaining and so I make a I don't know how to save text messages I haven't figured that out and I haven't you know I have a lot of things that I'm doing so that's a low priority for me to figure out how to save a text message and I don't want to leave them on my phone forever on off so that it's clean so when I look at it I'm looking just at the fresh stuff so then I I do a screenshot of it and I email it to myself to save it but I found it to my distress some of them are pretty long and they show up in my email like this like a little ribbon down the center of the page some of them are even smaller than this well then I go to open them up And it's just a blur. You were talking the other day, one of you two, about it's just like a cell phone where you can expand a picture and make it bigger. Well, it's not making it any bigger. It's making it bigger, but it's nothing but a blur. That was my concern that I wanted to ask Mr. Armstrong about, and I guess I should have, uh, for him to explain it better for me as to how that can be reliable. 
That Circuit Court Judge Schroeder, Bruce Schroeder, in the uh, overseeing the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who's uh, charged with several counts, including homicide and attempted homicide in the killings of Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber and wounding of Gage Crossgroots, who were anti-racist protesters at demonstrations in Kenosha, Wisconsin, following the uh, shooting of Jacob Blake by police. In an earlier decision, widely seen as prejudicial for the defense, Judge Schroeder ruled prosecutors couldn't refer to the persons killed or wounded by Rittenhouse as victims, but allowed defense lawyers to refer to them as rioters, arsonists, and looters. Final arguments are scheduled to begin in the trial on Monday. And across the world, Russia sent paratroopers to Belarus on Friday today in a show of support for its ally amid tensions over migrants and refugees amassing at the Belarus-Polish border. The Belarusian military said the exercise involved a battalion of Russian paratroopers and was intended to test the readiness of the allies' rapid response forces due to an increase of military activities near the Belarusian border. Earlier this week, Russia sent nuclear-capable strategic bombers on patrol missions over Belarus for two straight days. Russia's Deputy U.N. Ambassador Dmitry Polyansky told reporters at the U.N. headquarters in New York that the fights, the flights came in response to a massive buildup on the Polish border. Meanwhile, thousands of migrants and refugees have flocked to Belarus's border with Poland, hoping to get to Western Europe. Most of them are now stranded at the frontier, setting up makeshift camps at Polish secure, as Polish security forces watch them from behind a razor wire fence and try to prevent them from entering the country. Today, the United Nations representative from Estonia, Sven Jurgensen, says the European Union believes that Belarus President Alexander Lukashenko is aiding illegal border crossings in retaliation for EU sanctions. The current European Union members of the Security Council Estonia, France, and Ireland, joined today by the Security Council members Norway, the United Kingdom, and the United States, and the incoming Security Council member Albania, condemn the orchestrated instrumentalization of human beings whose lives and well-being have been put in danger for political purposes by Belarus. We will remain united and determined to protect the EU against these hybrid operations by Belarusian authorities. We call on the collaboration of the countries of origin and transit to warn their nationals against falling into the trap set by the Belarusian authorities. Russian envoy Dmitry Polyansky says the West is to blame for provoking Russia. There is a game of shifting blame now by European Union. They want to picture Belarus and sometimes even Russia as perpetrators of this crisis. Well, we've got used that uh, the main slogan of uh, European and uh, Western politics right now is uh, keep calm and blame Russia. So it's no surprise for us. It's not the first time that European Union faces this time of a crisis. One can uh, really remember about the reasons why these people are really uh, fleeing their countries, who was behind them, which countries destroyed uh, their countries. And that is the uh, Dmitry Polyansky is the the uh, deputy U.N. ambassador of Russia to the United Nations. In recent weeks, there's been a lot of military activity throughout the world. United States nuclear bombers overflew the Persian Gulf and China sailed a flotilla near Taiwan. And F.W. de Klerk, who shared the Nobel Peace Prize with Nelson Mandela 
And as South Africa's last apartheid president oversaw the end of the country's white minority rule, has died, he was aged 85. The clerk was a controversial figure in South Africa, where many blamed him for violence against black South Africans and anti-apartheid activists during his time in power, while some white South Africans saw his efforts to end apartheid as a betrayal. Posthumously, the clerk sought to address the criticisms against him in a video message in which he said he was sorry for his role in apartheid. His foundation released the video after announcing his death. I, without qualification, apologize for the pain and the hurt and the indignity and the damage that apartheid has done to black, brown, and Indians in South Africa. I do so not only in my capacity as the former leader of the National Party, but also as an individual. And that is F.W. de Klerk. South African President Cyril Ramaphosa says that de Klerk played a vital role in our transition to democracy in the 1990s. He took the courageous decision to unban political parties, release political prisoners, and entered into negotiations with the liberation movement amid severe pressure to the contrary from many in his political constituency. It was de Klerk who, in a speech to South Africa's parliament on February 2nd, 1990, announced that Mandela would be released from prison after 27 years. The announcement electrified a country that for decades had been scorned and sanctioned by much of the world for its brutal system of racial discrimination known as apartheid. And in climate news, young people both inside and outside of the United Nations climate talks are telling world leaders to hurry up and get it done that concrete measures to avoid catastrophe, catastrophic warming can't wait. It's an expression prominent that uh, as the as delegates listen to other delegates debate the intricate and intractable topics that have baffled negotiators for more than six years, a phrase popped into the head of uh, climate activist Greta Thunberg that's been repeated many times, blah, blah, blah. She started repeating those words that express her thoughts on the pace of government actions to, glurb, to curb global warming. The Thunberg-inspired Fridays for Future movement held a demonstration outside the conference venue to pressure the negotiators inside, drawing tens of thousands of participants. But after it was over, Thunberg told reporters that she feels that uh, there's not much hope of anything really getting done. There's still a very, very long way to go. Um, voices from activists uh, of uh, the most affected areas are still not being heard enough. Uh, we need much more representation, uh, be present at everywhere, but especially at the conferences like the COP26. And as long as we continue to ignore the aspect of equity and historic emissions, climate justice, then how can we expect any success whatsoever? If I speak for myself, I don't think I... Um, thought that this were gonna, was going to lead to something real because let's face it, as long as we continue to ignore the vast majority of this crisis, as long as we, our main goal is to, to find loopholes and find excuses not to take real action, then most li- we will most likely not see any big results at these meetings. I really think that it will be uh, delayed. Uh, it always gets delayed. And uh, so um, my expectations are, is that... I expect it to be delayed. Um, I don't know if I should say that I'm worried, but of course it doesn't look very promising right now. 
and that is climate activist Greta Thunberg. A recent article in Salon is titled The Big Climate Crisis We Aren't Take Talking About. Is nuclear winter coming? It was written by Norman Solomon, and it states that a nuclear war would quickly bring cataclysmic climate change. A recent scientific paper in sync with countless studies concludes that in the aftermath of nuclear weapons blasts in cities, smoke would effectively block out sunlight, causing below freezing temperatures to engulf the world. Researchers estimate such conditions would last for 10 years. The Federation of American Scientists predicts that a nuclear winter would cause most humans and large animals to die from nuclear famine in a mass extinction event similar to the one that wiped out the dinosaurs. We have spoken to two scientists who are authors of the report quoted in that article. It's called Nuclear Winter Responses to Nuclear War Between the United States and Russia in the Whole Atmosphere Community Climate Model Version 4 and the Goddard Institute for Space Studies Model E. The first person we speak with is Alan Roebuck, a distinguished professor at the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers University and associate editor of Review of Geophysics. He talks about the effect of a nuclear exchange on the atmosphere and how it compares with global warming caused by more gradual climate change. If there was a nuclear war, there would be smoke from fires that would be started by nuclear weapons on cities that would go up into the atmosphere and block out the sun and would have instant climate change. We're worried about gradual climate change from global warming, which is some, certainly something we should be worried about. But if there's a nuclear war, there would be instant climate change. It would get cold and dark and dry at the Earth's surface, and we would have a nuclear winter, which would produce global famine because it would stop all the crops from growing. Even a war between India and Pakistan on the other side of the world using a very small percentage of the global arsenal could produce large climate change. It wouldn't be nuclear winter, but it would still be a huge hit to our ability to grow food. Do you work on climate issues? I'm a climate scientist. I have a PhD from MIT in meteorology. I'm a professor at Rutgers University. So what had, from a meteorological point of view, what would happen? Cities burn, and we have examples of Hiroshima when it was bombed by a very small atomic bomb by today's standards. Even San Francisco burned in 1906 after an earthquake, and it pumped smoke up into the atmosphere. And we've recently had forest fires you may have heard of the big one in Australia about a year and a half ago where it was devastating, but it pumps smoke into the stratosphere, which is the layer above where we live. We live in the troposphere where there's rain, but in the stratosphere up above that, there's no rain. And so the smoke can be heated by the sun and lofted far up and be blown around the world and last for years. And that's what happened after these big forest fires. But after a nuclear war, there would be much, much more smoke from cities that would burn and we'd have an even larger impact. That would block the sun from hitting the earth? Yes, it would get dark and cold at the earth's surface. We have examples of big volcanic eruptions that put sulfur up in the stratosphere. And for a couple of years, it produces cooling. And we've actually observed that. The last big one was the Pinatubo eruption 30 years ago in the Philippines. We use climate models to calculate how the climate would, would change, and we test them on these small emissions of smoke from forest fires and on emissions of sulfur from volcanic eruptions, which gives us confidence that when we put a lot more smoke in from burning cities, that, that the answers would be correct. How is this different from the climate change that Greta Thunberg I just listened to was talking about? When we burn coal and oil and natural gas, it produces carbon dioxide. 
and that's a gas, and it blocks some of the heat that's leaving the earth. And so the atmosphere gets warmer, and we get extra energy from these greenhouse gases coming down in addition to the normal heat we get from the sun. Carbon dioxide lasts for decades and centuries. As it builds up in the atmosphere, it's like putting a blanket over the earth, and it makes it warmer and warmer. That's something that we're doing every day. Anytime we burn coal or oil, anytime you drive your car or turn on your lights, unless you have solar panels or or windmills, that's a gradual effect. It's gradually happening. The world is about one and a half degrees Fahrenheit warmer now than it would have been if humans hadn't been doing that. That sort of supercharges storms. There's more water in the atmosphere. When it condenses, it gives heat to hurricanes and thunderstorms, so we get stronger storms. A lot of weather extremes are caused by that. A nuclear winter would be the opposite. It would be rapid cooling. It would be so catastrophic that it would affect crops. How long would the nuclear winter last? It turns out it doesn't really matter how much smoke. The lifetime is about the same. The cooling would be about five years at its maximum. After 10 years, most of it would be gone. So it wouldn't last forever because the smoke eventually falls out of the atmosphere. But in the meantime, of course, if you run out of food, it doesn't really matter how much weather it warms up later if everybody is killed by famine. We claim that we keep our nuclear weapons to deter an attack. But that implies that if somebody attacked us, we would attack them back. And if we did, we would all die from the climate effects of using the nuclear weapons. And so we're acting like a suicide bomber. It's completely insane. And it's a much easier problem to solve, getting rid of a few thousand nuclear weapons. You don't have to change the whole energy system of the planet. We have to solve that problem so we have the luxury of worrying about global warming. Alan Robach is a distinguished professor at the Department of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers University and associate editor of the Reviews of Geophysics. Another scientist, Owen Toon, is professor of atmospheric and oceanic studies. He's a fellow at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado in Boulder. He's an expert on asteroids. But he said today climate change and nuclear conflict are linked. Just today, we see conflict developing in the, between the European Union and Russia due to migrants stuck at the border between Belarus and Poland, as reported earlier in this newscast. As the century progresses, he says, the number of migrants is going to rise because increasing areas of the Middle East and Africa, among others, are going to have significant stress due to rising temperatures and changing precipitation. But he went on to uh, – to uh, exp- to tell us a little bit about uh, his uh, knowledge as a as a physicist who studies asteroid hits on the Earth, and to compare the uh, incidents that led to the extinction of the dinosaurs 65 million years ago when an asteroid uh, struck the Earth and enveloped the Earth in uh, lava-like conditions of thousands of degrees, uh, hundreds of degrees, maybe even thousands in some areas that uh, were like sort of trying to live in a broiler and dinosaurs as he mentions are descendants of birds so in a way the asteroid fried some chicken and baked some chicken uh broiled chicken here on the earth being meaning all the dinosaurs while the uh the animals that we are descended from the mammals were hiding in the crevices and cracks and were among the few species to survive and to become the human uh, human race that we know of today, uh, Professor Toon had this to say about asteroids, nuclear war, and the end of time. With the dinosaurs is that an asteroid about as big as Mount Everest 
traveling 10 times faster than the fastest bullet from a, a rifle, released an energy of about 10 to the 8th megatons, 100 million megatons of uh, energy. So that would be the equivalent of 100 million of the largest nuclear weapons ever exploded. When it hit the Yucatan, the asteroid vaporized turned to rock vapor, and that went thousands of miles above the Earth. A big hot cloud, which we know because we saw some smaller things do this on Jupiter a few decades ago. And when that vapor cloud of rock cooled as it expanded into space, it formed little spheres about the size of a grain of sand. And these came back into the atmosphere, just like shooting stars. But instead of a normal shooting star, you know, there are 20,000 shooting stars per square inch sitting on the ground left over from this event. So they heated the upper atmosphere to a couple thousand degrees. This is the same kind of temperature you get in your oven when it's on broil. You can go down to the grocery store and buy an avian dinosaur as a chicken or a turkey. Those are all dinosaurs. Stick it in your oven and turn it on broil, not bake, broil. Uh, and that's probably what happened to the dinosaurs is that that intense radiation and light burned them alive and it set all the forests on fire. And we know it set all the forests on fire because smoke from the forest fires is still in that same layer with the asteroid debris. We know how much was there that killed the dinosaurs and it was about 100 times as much smoke as the smoke we would think would come from a nuclear war. The light levels at the ground remain below 1% of normal for a couple of years, more than enough to cause the mass extinction. The ocean plankton didn't have any light, so they couldn't reproduce. 75% of the species on the planet died. The smoke from a nuclear war is make the temperatures fall probably just about as much as they fell at the extinction of the dinosaurs. It would be sub-ice age temperatures for most of a decade. You wouldn't be able to grow anything in the latitudes. Most people think that uh, there's like seven years of food in storage somewhere because that's what it said in the Bible and the Koran. But actually, there's only 60 days of food in storage. So after 60 days, there's nothing to feed people on the planet. Oh, man. That's a cheery thought. Yes, cheery. In a way, nuclear weapons are like the asteroids that struck the Earth and wiped out the dinosaurs and could do the same to mammals, which are the uh, reigning species these days. Exactly. The dinosaurs arose after a other mass extinction about 250 million years ago, and it took them about 30 million years until another extinction occurred and they took over the Earth. We were there at the time, our ancestors, mammals, were there at the same time. We weren't getting anywhere. We were hiding out in holes in the ground like little mice and shrews or small mammals, that were probably nocturnal to try to avoid the dinosaurs. We didn't take over because of our superior skills. They just got killed off by this asteroid. What would replace survived. us? What would replace us? Well, now there's a good question there. There's, there is a model of a dinosaurid that might have been ruling the Earth now if the impact hadn't occurred. It would have three fingers, so it'd be good for cartoonists. Where are we going to go from here? Very different than we look now. We, they were a different animal if we saw them in the bar. So uh, would insects replace us? People. Could it be insect people? Like insects could fill that hole and you could have like uh, erudite cockroaches sipping martinis <laughs> at the bar? Yeah, well, lots of people think cockroaches will survive a nuclear war better than we will.
Brian Toon is a professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences. He's a fellow at the Laboratory for Atmospheric and Space Physics at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Jurors were shown graphic close-up police photos this week of the gunshot wounds that killed Ahmed Arbery, while the first officer to find the 25-year-old black man bleeding in the road testify he didn't try to render medical aid because it would not have been safe. Three white men are on trial for murder and other crimes in the slaying of Arbery, who was chased and shot February 23, 2020, after he was spotted running in a neighborhood just outside the port city of Brunswick. And by running, they mean jogging. An attorney for one of the men standing trial in the killing of Arbery told the judge yesterday he doesn't want any more black pastors in the courtroom after Reverend Al Sharpton sat with the slain man's family. Kevin Gow represents William Roddy Bryan, who, along with his father and son, Greg and Travis McMichael, is charged with murder and other crimes in Arbery's February 23, 2020 killing. The 25-year-old black man was chased and fatally shot, as we said earlier. Go told Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley that he was concerned Sharpton's presence in court Wednesday was an attempt to intimidate the disproportionately white jury hearing the case. The jury was not in the courtroom when he made the remarks. Obviously, there's only so many pastors they can have. And if their pastor's Al Sharpton right now, that's fine. But then that's it. We don't want any more black pastors coming in here or other Jesse Jackson, whoever was in was in here earlier this week, sitting with the victim's family, trying to influence a jury in this case. And I'm not saying the state is even aware that Mr. Sharpton was in the courtroom. I certainly wasn't aware of it till last night. But I think the court can understand my concern uh, about bringing people in who really don't have any ties to this case other than political interests. And that is the uh, – that is the Kevin Go, pardon me. He represents William Roddy Bryan, who is one of the three men charged in the murder of Ahmed Arbery. Sharpton held a prayer vigil and news conference outside the Glynn County Courthouse on Wednesday afternoon to show support for Arbery's family. Afterwards, he joined their parents to listen to the testimony inside. Sharpton said in his statement that Gao's remarks showed arrogant insensitivity. He continued, I respect the defense attorney doing his job, but this is beyond defending your client. And it's insulting the family of the victim. Jury selection ended last week with prosecutors objecting to the final jury of 11 whites and one black juror. The judge agreed there appeared to be intentional discrimination in the exclusion of black potential jurors, but said Georgia law limited his authority to intervene. One juror, a white woman, was dismissed before the trial began for medical reasons. Fifteen total panelists are hearing the trial, 12 jurors plus three alternates. The judge hasn't given the uh, races of the alternate jurors and they were not asked to state their race in open court. And that's some of the news for Friday, November 12, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.